Uh, I know a number of you do still remember me, even though it was quite a long time ago that we left, and will know that my timekeeping is atrocious, so I'm glad that there's a clock at the back, because that might help me stick to time. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. This feels really strange. I have to say, uh, our church over in East Hull is uh, considerably smaller than, than you are and meets in a building that's considerably smaller. And normally I'm on the floor just a few inches away from the front row. So to be up here and looking down on you all is a little strange. Although I can look up at some of you as well. Hello. That's lovely. I'll try and remember to do that <laughs> so that you don't feel I'm excluding you. But it's wonderful to be with you this morning. And uh, River City sends their love uh, we do very much feel like, as Dan said, you, you may have inherited some things from us being here in the past. We have inherited so much as a church from you, and so much of who we are as River City uh, comes from who you are as Jubilee, and how you have helped us to understand how the church can be God's presence, his his physical presence on the earth. And so thank you so much for everything you have put into us. We are so grateful. Uh, Dan's kind of introduced me, but I did bring some pictures uh, that hopefully will come up for you to see a little bit more about me and us. It's hard to see, I know, from that distance. But um, uh, yeah, so I'm married to Abby. We've been married uh, since 2006. We got married about two months before Jubilee started, and so uh, that was a pretty eventful summer for us, uh, getting married. Abby moved to Hull, and, uh, and we started a church, so it was pretty full on. Uh, since then, we've had three kids, so uh, you'll see them in the middle picture. Uh, Noah, our eldest, is just about to turn 13. Uh, Judah is 10, and Phoebe, our youngest, is just turned four. Uh, and they're wonderful kids. I love them very much. Uh, constantly grateful for them. And, uh, and then top uh, right is our church family. And this picture is taken from our recent gift day, uh, hence the golden balloon that's floating in the foreground. But um, that's, uh, we meet in a building called The Well, which is on Holdness Road in East Hull. And uh, that's us on a Sunday morning. And uh, we had Sue... Wilson with us a couple of weeks ago, and it was, she was incredible. Uh, sadly, uh, Judah was ill, so I was watching at home, but uh, definitely felt like I was in the room, and Sue did an incredible job uh, speaking to us, and we've got Phil coming in a few weeks' time, so uh, we're, we're slowly trying to poach all of your greatest and good, so um, it's not worked yet. Sue's still here, sadly, but um, one day. And uh, it, it's just, we received so much from her, it's wonderful. And we're excited for what Phil will bring. I'm just going to tell you a couple of quick stories from our church life, our church family. Uh, just for those of you who know us and have known us to encourage you, but for those who don't, just to give you an idea of what's going on. Uh, we, over the summer, had a lady come to our church for the first time, a lady called Jacqueline. And uh, she came one Sunday and... Um, Afterwards, as we were sharing tea and coffee, uh, I was, uh, went over to introduce myself and say hello to her, and, uh, and she jumped straight in with, uh, can you introduce me to Jesus? Now, that's not the average opening to a conversation that you have with someone on a Sunday. Most people are pretty nervous to be there for the first time. They're pretty kind of self-aware. They're pretty cautious, but Jacqueline was none of those things. She was straight in with the uh, 
can you introduce me to Jesus? And uh, I was like, wow, uh, um, y- yes, I hope so. Why, why, are you, why do you want, want to get to meet Jesus? And she said, I need him in my life. I need deliverance. And I was like, oh my goodness, this has got really heavy pretty quick. Uh, so I was like, right, okay, why, why do you think you need that, Jacqueline? She said, well, because I've just got all this stuff in my life, things that have been passed down to me from my family and things that have happened in my life or that I've done, and they've, they've broken me and they've made me all dirty. And I know that the only way to break those things off my life is Jesus. He's the only thing that's going to help. And so are you a church where you, that does that? <laughs> and I, with the little faith that I had, was like, yes, <laughs> I think we could, might, might be able to help. Um, and I had this, we had this incredible conversation. And as we've got to know Jacqueline, she uh, had lived a really difficult life. She had fallen into addiction uh, in her early adult life. She had been in a relationship with a violent partner who had made things incredibly difficult for her. She'd had a daughter and raised a daughter in that kind of very difficult situation and was very protective of that daughter who was now a young uh, kind of teenage girl and, and eventually had had to end the relationship with her partner. And he, he had moved out and then he uh, quite quickly died. And so she'd kind of been confronted with her own mortality and the loss of someone that she loved, no matter how difficult that relationship had been for her. And so she started to ask some questions about where was her life going, what was going on. And she started to seek for answers in the new age. So she started to read tarot cards and go to mediums and try and find answers in those places. And she got really involved in the new age. But stuff started to happen to her that she couldn't explain. She opened a kitchen cupboard one day and found inside the cupboard a book full of prayers that she'd never bought and never seen before. She went to a supermarket and she was looking for a book to buy and on the shelf in front of her was a Bible. And she bought the Bible, not intending to buy that book, but it just kind of jumping out at her from the shelf in like Asda. (laughs) And so she started to read these things and this character in these prayers and in this book of Jesus started to kind of draw her towards himself. And so she started to ask questions and those that were involved in the New Age with her weren't very keen on her asking such questions. So they didn't really answer them. So she started to go online. She started to look online and she found a a huge community of people who had moved from the New Age to Christianity, who had found Jesus and left behind their old practices. And as she listened to these stories and as she saw what these people were talking about, she realized that the, the hope and the power that she'd been seeking were not in where she was, but were in this person, Jesus. And so she realized, I need to go and find him. And the first people that came to her door <laughs> were some Mormons. And she thought, maybe this is it. So she went to the Mormon church. And she re- very quickly realized, this isn't where Jesus is. Not the Jesus that I need. And so she left. And the next week, she went to her local Church of England church. 
And she started to talk about, I need this deliverance, I need to be set, and they didn't really know what to do. So she realized this isn't the place. And the next week she came to us, and I ended up having that conversation with her. We had the joy over the next few weeks of leading Jacqueline into a relationship with Jesus. And she's brought her daughter to the church as well. And her daughter is now looking for Jesus as well. And it has been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I tell this story not just to excite you and fill you with faith and help you see what's going on in our church, but I believe that God is doing something in our world. I believe he's doing something in our city. I believe he's revealing himself to people who have never been to church before and have no understanding of who he is, but are seeking something and desperate for hope, and Jesus is coming and telling them that it's in him. And we as the church need to be ready because they're going to start coming more and more into our buildings, into our lives, and saying to us, can you introduce me to this Jesus? And we need to be ready. God is asking us to prepare ourselves for what he's going to do. The second story is this. Uh, We have a wonderful lady in our church called Jane. And Jane and her husband Jeff were the first people to become Christians when we started River City. We started meeting in a small community center just down the road from where we moved to. And Jeff and Jane lived nearby, and Jeff was walking his dog one morning and saw our welcome team kind of stood outside, got into a conversation and found out that we were a new church and we were just meeting. So he came in. He took his dog home, came back, came into the meeting. And then the next week, he brought Jane with him. Now, Jeff had spent his entire life searching for meaning. He had investigated every world religion. He had been to India to seek out truth through uh, Eastern mysticism and all sorts of things, and had come to the realization, much like Jacqueline, that Jesus was the answer. And so he had found us at just the right point where he was wanting to get to know this Jesus for himself. And miraculously, Jeff and Jane gave their lives to Jesus. We were, they were the first people we got to baptize. It was a wonderful thing. Now, just before COVID, literally the week before lockdown, Jeff died of cancer. And we were unable to have a proper funeral and all of those things. It was incredibly difficult for us and for Jane. And uh, we're just now about to have a celebration of his life where we can actually all get in the room together and praise God for him. Um, But Jane, obviously, now is on her own. She's not yet retired. She works part-time and has a small pension from Jeff's job coming in. And so the cost of living is really hitting Jane hard. She's struggling, and she's considering selling her house because she's living in a house that's too big for just her on her own. And we as a church uh, rely on the giving of our members to kind of fund as much as Jubilee does. And once a year we have a gift day as I showed you from the picture. And so we had our gift day a few weeks ago and Jane wanted to give. She's an incredibly faithful, obedient disciple and she loves Jesus so much. She wanted to give financially on the gift day. But she didn't have any money to give. She, had, uh, she was struggling particularly with the uh, 
utility bills for the house, and she was looking at not having enough to get through the winter. She was worried about, I'm not going to be able to pay the bills that they're telling me I'm going to have to pay. But she wanted to give, so she prayed, and she realized that she had some jewelry that Jeff had given her, and it was just sat in a jewelry box. So she took the jewelry to a jewelry shop and said, would you buy this off me? And the jewelry guy said, well, I need to look at it, kind of, so go away, uh, give me the weekend and come back on Monday, and, but I think it might be about 100 pounds or so. So Jane left, she came on the Sunday for the gift day and she gave the money that she was expecting to receive for the jewelry. So she gave 100 pounds. On the Monday, she went back to the jewellery shop and the jewellery man said, actually, the jewellery that you've given is worth more than I thought. It's actually £200. So here's £200. Now, many of you would probably think, wonderful, so she gave 100 she got 100 back. Isn't God faithful? Isn't he good? And you would receive that £100 with gratitude. Not Jane. Jane went, great, that means I can give twice as much. So she doubled what she gave. So she sent these two amounts of money in. And uh, I saw it on the bank statement, so I rang her up just to check it wasn't an error. (laughs) I was like, Jane, you said you'd give this much, but there are two payments for the same amount. Did you accidentally kind of click the button twice or whatever? She was like, no, 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 no. I felt like God wanted me to give double what I originally wanted. I'm giving it all. Now, we've, as a church, a few years ago, got a word from God that was double, 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 double. And God kind of made that happen in a number of ways, including babies. We suddenly had a load of babies in the church. We had a few, and then suddenly we got double, double the number of babies in the church we were expecting. It was an incredible thing. Anyway, Jane had given all that she had got from this jewellery. Two days later on the Wednesday, an envelope lands on Jane's, uh, through Jane's letterbox, and she gets home from work to find this envelope, and she opens the envelope, and inside is a card, and all the card says is, with love. And inside the card is 400 pounds in cash, double the double that Jane had given. And so suddenly she was able to pay her bills. She knows now that she is safe for the winter. And I tell that story not just because of God's incredible provision, but because we are all entering a season where we will face financial challenges where many of us may well be afraid of what is coming. And I just want you to know that God is for you and his reassurance to you is if you put your trust in him, even in seasons where things are difficult, God will provide for you. He will protect you. He will guard you if you put what you have at his feet and entrust it to him.
Anyway, it's got nothing to do with my preach this morning, but I just felt like God wanted to speak to you from our experience, things that I think are going to be true for all of us in this season. Anyway, I know that you are looking at the moment at the book of Daniel and looking at the uh, ways in which the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world are often very different, how their values clash and how we can remain faithful to the values of God's kingdom in the face of the pressure from outside to conform to this world. And today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5. Now, I love a good disaster movie. Who here likes a good disaster movie? Yeah, so Armageddon, like something's plummeting towards Earth and we're all going to die, or uh, nuclear winter's coming, or whatever. Like, I love a good disaster movie. And recently I watched one called Don't Look Up. Now, it has a lot of rude language in it, so if you're sensitive to rude language, I wouldn't watch it. And I wouldn't watch it again, knowing how rude it was <laughs> once I'd seen it, but I didn't know what was coming when I started. Anyway, it is a disaster movie. It's about the end of the world. And at the end of the world in the film, and I'm not really giving it away to tell you that that's what happens, uh, they, um, the main characters in the story gather around a, a dinner table. And they've come from all kinds of different walks of life, but throughout the story have ended up together. And they sit around this table with these people who they've come to love and care for, even though they didn't know each other before. And they don't really know what to do. They know what's coming. They don't know what to do. They're eating together. They're trying to kind of stay upbeat. And then one of the characters says, would you like me to pray? And they all say yes. And the character, this character prays. What was an incredible prayer? It's kind of a comedy film. Like, there's a lot of kind of dark comedy in it. And I thought, oh, here we go. This is another moment where they're going to kind of mock faith. But they don't. There's this incredible poignant prayer at the end about the fact that none of them know what's going to happen next. But they trust in God. And it's incredibly powerful. And my question at the beginning of this morning is this. What would you do if you knew that you were about to die? If you thought you only had a day or an hour or a week left, if kind of the end was definite for you, what would you do? I know it's a little bit heavy and dark to start with, but Dan gave me the topic, so you can blame him. But it's a powerful question that I don't feel we ask ourselves enough. The world kind of encourages us not to think about that, not to think about the end, to kind of deny death. But it's real. I think people's responses to that question fall into two categories. Some people, I think, would probably seek out security, like the people in the film did. They would try and gather around all of those that they loved and kind of spend time with those that they really value and care about and, and kind of make the most of that moment, knowing that the end was in sight. 
The other group, I think, kind of live in defiance of death. They're like, I'm going out with a bang. I'm going to kind of splash it all. I'm going to go and buy that car I've always wanted. I'll go and, you know, go to a casino and put it all on black because, you know, what the heck? I don't care. Death can have me. I'm going to live life to the full until the last minute. Well, in chapter 5 of Daniel, we see someone faced with that very situation. And God wants to teach us some powerful lessons from their response. You see, in Daniel chapter 5, the date is October the 12th, 539 BC. And King Belshazzar, son of King Nebuchadnezzar, is ruling Babylon, whilst his father is away at war with the Persians. And just 50 miles away from where they are, a few days before, the Babylonian army, led by Nebuchadnezzar, is defeated by the Medo-Persian army. And at this moment, the city of Babylon is surrounded. They are under siege. And Belshazzar knows that the battle is lost. He knows that his kingdom, his father's kingdom, his kingdom has crumbled And that his life is soon to end. There's no way they're getting out of this. So what does Belshazzar do? We'll read the story now and see. It's quite long, but it's important that we read it all. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, concubines is basically like, well, ask your parents, but... um, Ladies that he, the king liked, but he wasn't married to. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, now this is the queen mother, okay? So we've got all the wives and concubines in the room, okay? But when it says the queen, it means Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen. Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. 
There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Dan- I don't know why he needs to ask, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and, have, uh, and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride... He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom will be div- is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
It's all kind of meaningless when you read the next line. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of God. So, Belshazzar's response to the fact that he knew that his death was coming just around the corner is to have a party. Of course it is. He doesn't choose kind of security or hope or kind of looking outside of himself for help in this circumstance. No, what he does is he just gets all of his mates around and all of his wives and all of his concubines and they get drunk. They have a great time. They're living it up. They're defying death. They're like, we're not going to look outside the walls at the army that surrounds us. We're just going to have a good time while we can. He gives this great banquet. And he, gathered, he gets the goblets that were used in the temple of Jerusalem to worship God He brings those into this drunken, debauched party and they fill them with wine and drink of them. Now, we know from this story that Belshazzar knew about God because Daniel says to him, you knew everything that happened to your dad. You knew how he defied God and how arrogant he was and how God brought him down to living amongst the animals. And only when he admitted that God was sovereign was he restored to his kingship. Belshazzar knew that story. He knew what had happened. So he knew whose stuff he was using in that party. He knew that they were the goblets used to worship that very God. And yet he uses them and defiles them by getting drunk from the wine that he fills them with. So what can we learn from this story? What does the demise, the end of a pretty arrogant and nasty-sounding king with this weird vision of some writing on a wall, what's that got to do with us? How is that relevant to you today? Well, I'm going to ask four simple questions this morning. Four questions that we use as a church all the time to help us to understand the Bible. And we use these questions with people who don't know Jesus. They're a great way to help non-believers to study and understand the Bible for themselves. And so I would encourage you... If you know someone who is looking for Jesus or wants to know more, get out a Bible, read a story, and then help them to ask these four questions. The first question is, what does this story teach us about God? The first thing is this. A very clever theologian that I like called Peter Lightheart says this. He says, history is the stage for the drama of God's self-revelation. That means the history of the world, everything that happens in the world and and in the lives of the people that inhabit the world, it happens for the purpose of God showing the world who he is. Okay, God has created the world and everyone who lives on it in order that he might show us himself. 
And in verses 18 to 21 in this chapter, Daniel makes clear to Belshazzar that his father was only able to rule because God allowed it. And that it was God who removed his power when he became too arrogant and gave him back his power when he humbled himself and acknowledged who God was. The Bible here is teaching us that the rise and the fall of kings and rulers is not to do with their economic or political power, but their response to God's word and his prophets. God is using human history all the time to tell us about who he is. And that is no less true now than it was when Daniel stood before the king of Babylon. The, the bedrock of any society, if you're a Christian and believe in God, you know that the bedrock of any society is its answer to the question, who is God around here? That is how all societies, all systems are built, is they choose a God and they build their society around it. And the answer to who their God is show, reveals, is revealed in what happens to them. I believe that That was what was happening in this story. God was showing the Babylonians how powerful he was. That he could raise and remove kings. That power and authority comes only from him. And I believe that he's trying to teach us that now too. I believe that what is happening in this nation right now is because God wants to shake and expose the gods that we have built our society around. He's trying to show those that don't know him that the things that they have made gods cannot speak, they cannot hear. As Daniel says, they are powerless. They can be brought low, markets can crash, prime ministers can fall, things can happen in a moment that shake the foundations of the society that we live in because we have forgotten who is sovereign, who truly holds all authority and power. And it's not as simple as just good things happen to a country, that's because God's happy with them, and bad things happen because he's not. Okay, it's not that simple. Not every bad event that happens in the world is God's judgment on it, and not every good thing is God's blessing. Because there are bad things happening to people in the world right now who have done nothing wrong. We know that to be the case. There's a war going on. And the nation that is being harmed, experiencing the bad, is not because, I don't believe that's because God is judging them. Okay, the Bible says it's not that simple. Read the story of Job, and he very clearly explains that bad stuff's happening to him, not because God is judging him or he's done anything wrong. 
So it's not that simple, but God does want us in every moment to be asking ourselves, God, why is this happening? Why is this happening to the world? Why is it happening to our country? Because you want to show the world something about who you are through it. And what is it? But on a more personal level, how easy can it be when things go well for us that we give credit to ourselves rather than to God? Oh, I got that promotion at work. That must be because I'm working really hard. Oh, you know, I, I've experienced this good thing. Well, that must be because, you know, of, of me being a good person. And the world will try and tell us that that is the case, that our lives are our own. You get to decide who you are, how great you are, what you can achieve. You can do whatever you want to do if you set your mind to it. You can be great if only you set your mind to it and go for it. And those that are experiencing bad things, that's all your fault. You haven't tried hard enough. You haven't done enough. You've made bad choices. It's all your fault. Or you shouldn't even try. Don't even try. Because you're not going to achieve anything. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not good enough. But this story teaches us that God can raise up those he chooses. And God can bring down those he chooses. The question is, do we place our lives, our choices, our futures into his hands and entrust them to him? Or do we take hold of them for ourselves? One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. This is called the Shema. This is a prayer that the Jewish people would pray every morning as they woke up and every night as they went to sleep. From the youngest to the oldest, this is the first thing they were taught. And it was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And in Matthew 5, 16... Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The Shema was not just a statement of faith about what they were to believe, but it told them that that faith had to be lived out. There had to come action with the belief, and it had to be visible you literally had to put it on your forehead or write, attach it to your arm or write, put it on your doorpost. This is a house where God is the Lord. This is a place where he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This household belongs to him. From the youngest to the oldest, he is the Lord our God and we love him with all our strength and all our hearts and all our minds. Belshazzar's biggest fault was that he did not credit God for anything that he had achieved. He did not dedicate his household, 
his kingdom to the Lord and say, this belongs to the Most High God. He said, it's mine. I did it. I achieved it. I built it. And so my encouragement to you this morning is this. In the good things that you do, in the blessings that you experience, in the choices that you make, are you acknowledging that those things happen because of God? You know, sometimes I'll give my non-Christian friends a meal because I know that they're going through a challenging period. And in the past, they'd go, oh, thank you, John, that's so kind of you, that's so nice. And I'd just say, oh, that's okay, that's fine. You know, I just want to be a good friend. We love you, we want to, you know, bless you. And I realized I'm kind of taking the credit for myself in that moment. Like, yeah, it's just because I'm a nice person. (laughs) There are lots of nice people out there, and I wasn't one of them. (laughs) When I was younger, I wasn't one of them. I wouldn't have done that, but now I do. Well, what has changed? Well, the reason that I'm doing that for you is because God loves me, and I've come to receive that love and know that love, that he is generous to me in moments when I'm in need, and therefore when I see need in others, I want to show God's love to them. And so when I give them a meal now and they say, thank you so much, that's so kind, I, I purposefully choose to say, that's because God loves me and God's love has transformed my life and he has given me things when I've really needed them. And so I want to show you that God loves you too in this small way that he sees your needs and he wants to provide for you. That's the Shema. That's letting people see my good works and praise him, not me. And that's something that all of us should desire to do. The second thing we learn about God, and I'll go quicker through these, I promise, is that who do we think gets to decide what our life has achieved? I think many of us want to, when we think about our lives and their end, want to leave some sort of legacy, some sort of impact. We want people to remember us well or to think about us kindly. We want those that we love to miss us and kind of wish that we were still around. Maybe we have a wider group of friends or people at work or whatever, and we'd want them to talk about how good we were. Some of us may even have aspirations to influence many more people. We might want to be in politics or be in business and kind of have a a larger impact on society as a whole. What people think about us matters. But this story tells us that at the end of our lives, the only opinion that really matters is God's. Belshazzar's receiving all the plaudits. He's got a room full of people who think he's amazing. They're all there. Yeah, let's drink it up. Let's have a party. Belshazzar, you're such a laugh. You're what a lad. You're having this great time. There's there's an army outside, but you don't care. Whoa, you're amazing. But none of that matters at the end. None of that can save Belshazzar's life. It cannot save his kingdom and it cannot save his legacy. This trust was prime minister for 45 days and we think that's short. This guy was king for a matter of hours because <laughs> his dad had been killed in a battle a few days before and now he's going to die. He's only been there for a couple of days. 
His legacy is wiped out. There's no glory. There's no legacy. Those things are in God's hands and God's hands alone. Psalm 75 says, No one from the east or the west, from the desert, can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. So my challenging question to you this morning is, who are you living your life for? Because the world would say, do things for people. Do things for reputation. Do things for people's kind of approval. Do things for those that could promote you or help you or get you further in life. But the Bible says, do everything that you do only for God. Because when your life ends, at the end... He is the one you will stand before. He is the one who will weigh your life and judge it. Paul, at the very end of his life, looking back on it, said this in Philippians 3, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying all of that stuff that I thought gave me reputation, gave me popularity, gave me significance, it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. I consider it all a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. If you're here this morning and you have never met Jesus for yourself, maybe like Jacqueline, you've come in looking for him today and you've not heard about him before, known much about him, This morning, today's story tells you this, that one day you will stand before him. At the end of your life, you will stand before God, the one true and holy judge. And if you have not, like Paul did, come to know that Jesus is the only thing worth knowing, that Jesus is the only one in which you can have hope, then you will be judged as Belshazzar was to be lacking. But if, if today you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, if you throw your life on him and say, Jesus, I trust in you, I know that you are the only one who can save me, the only one that can rescue me, the only one that can give me the hope and the eternal life that I need, and I give my life to you because you're the king, then on that day when you stand before the judge, he will welcome you in as a son, as a daughter. He will say, come into my house, good and faithful servant, you are welcome. So that's what this story teaches us about God. Quickly, what does it teach us about people? Well, firstly... That the world wants to bring down what God raises up and wants to raise up what God has made low. As Belshazzar and his party get into full swing, they bring these goblets in. These goblets were used for worship in the temple. So God gave very clear instructions to his people to set apart those things for his worship. They were holy instruments. 
And the king defiles them. He brings them and he uses them for drunkenness and revelry. He makes them unclean. Whilst at the same time, they worship the materials that those things are made of. They worship God and silver and stone. They praise these created things and turn them into gods. How often does the culture of this world do that? They reverse what God has established as the right order. There are things that God has set apart, that he has said, these are the boundaries, this is what makes these things special. Creation, our own bodies, our hearts, our time, our money, our families, our marriages. God says, I have a plan for all those things so that they can be used in worship to me. But the world says, no. They're not for God. They're not to be dedicated to God. Do what you want with your body. It's just a physical thing. It doesn't matter what you do with it. Do what you want with your money. It's your money. It's not for him. It's not for his worship. Do what you want with it. And it sullies and defiles and makes dirty those things that God says should be pure. Whilst at the same time elevating the things to God's that God says shouldn't be. People worship the environment and how, you know, the, how it's made and stuff. People worship animals in strange ways. Okay, the, the protection of animals and the not eating of them and that sort of stuff. I'm not saying all of that's wrong, but there is in part a, 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 a worship of those things. Of family, of children. People worship their, their own family and kind of raise up their family to kind of have authority that only God should have over them. They make sex or riches or their feelings or, or kind of living this incredible life on social media. They make those things gods. When God said those things should never be that, they're just created things. So the world flips upside down the whole order and we can so often find ourselves drawn into that. And so we need to learn from this story that we are to worship God and God alone and use in our worship of God the things that he has asked us to. And we are not to worship and adore as God those things that he has created. The second thing we learn about people is this, that we can easily forget the lessons of the past. You know, every generation thinks it knows better than the one that came before we all look at our parents or grandparents and think, well, that was, that was just stupid, wasn't it? They were just kind of less clever than us, less enlightened. They didn't really know what they were doing. We know now. We've worked it out. We've sorted it out. They don't observe the lessons of the past. But this story makes clear that every one of us has a choice. Are we willing to humble ourselves and say, actually... <laughs> I'm not as clever as I think. Because my dad, he did what I'm doing, and he ended up like an animal in a field. So maybe <laughs> I should learn a lesson from that and not do what he did. Oh no, he just, he, just, he just did it the wrong way or whatever. I can do it better. I can be a better arrogant king than he can. And we so quickly forget that there is nothing new under the sun. Okay, we need to be very careful 
of lifting ourselves up and placing ourselves in a position of judgment over others. It happens so often when we look back on history. You know, I, I would never have been a Nazi. No, no, I'd never have given in to Hitler and all of his work because he was clearly evil. He was, it was so obvious. I'd never have been stupid enough to have gone along with that. None of us know that. Many of us would have been enticed and drawn in by the lure of power or kind of the opportunities that might have given us. And there are many other things where we sit in judgment over the past and say, oh, well, I would never do that. I would never be that. But the truth is this story tells us this. As Alexander Seletskin wrote, the line separating good and evil doesn't pass through states or classes or between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Every one of us must go through the same battle that Belshazzar went through. Do not think yourself immune from that temptation. The truth is this, in your own heart, there is a desire to give yourself credit for the things that you achieve. There is a desire for power and authority and riches. There is a desire for popularity and for sex and for wives and concubines. Not for all of you, but for some of you maybe. But there's this, there are these things and they're in our hearts. And we are arrogant to assume that we would never fall for the things that King Belshazzar does. We must remain humble. We must seek God's guidance. And we must repent when we find ourselves drawn to those things and away from a position of depending on God. So that's what we can learn about people. Now we finish with our response. Two more questions. Firstly, what does obedience to what we've learned today look like? Okay, I cannot tell you that, but the Spirit can. The Holy Spirit is the one that teaches us how we can obey what we learn from God's Word. So I'm going to make some suggestions, but then I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit. What should I do? What should I do this week based on what I've learned today? And what we encourage people to do when we do this with them is to come up with a simple statement, an I will statement. Make a commitment today. This is something I will do in obedience to what I've learned. And you don't even need to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus to do this. Your I will might be to give your life to Jesus today. But here are a few things you might do. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Romans 12.3 says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Maybe for you, your act of obedience is to take an honest look on the inside today. It's to take a look at your own heart and say, actually, yeah, God, I haven't been giving you the glory for the things that I have in my life. I, I've been taking the credit, and I do that because I want to feel special, or I want to feel loved, or I want to feel 
popular or I want to feel people's approval. And because of that, I've kind of built my own life on me and not on you. And that's a problem on the inside of me. And today I need to change. And so I will repent. Repenting simply means you're going in one direction, you're following a path, and the ultimate destination of that path is death. Because it's away from God. And repentance is simply realizing you're going the wrong way and saying in your mind, no, God, I want to turn around and I want to walk towards you, towards life. So I'm changing. I want to change. God, help me. I'm sorry that I was going that way. I want to go this way. And maybe that's your I will this week, is to say, God, I'm sorry I was going down this road where I just wanted it to be about me. And this week, I want to make it about you. Maybe your I will statement is this, that this week you are going to do something good for someone else. And you're intentionally going to tell them that you're doing it because of who God is, not because of who you are. That you're going to do your Shema. You're going to say, God, I love you with all of my strength and all of my mind. So everything I do is for you. And I want someone to know that this week. So that person I know is in need, that person who needs caring for, that person who's looking lonely at the school gate, I'm going to go and talk to them. But when they say to me, why did you come and talk to me? I'm not going to say, it's just because I'm a nice person. You're going to say, because I was alone once and lost. And God came into my life. He found me. And so I want you to know that you're not alone. And God is looking for you. Think about, pray about, ask the Holy Spirit about God. How this week can I do something good and give you the glory? Maybe your I will statement this week is to pray for our nation. I know that there will be those in the room who love to pray that kind of fighting prayer. And we need our nation to humble itself. Our nation is crumbling, it's shaking, it's, it's teetering. And, and you can see that people are desperately just trying to rebuild it themselves. If we just get the right prime minister, we'll be okay. No, we won't. If God is trying to shake the foundations of our trust in things that are not him, he will not allow a new prime minister to just fix everything because then we'll just go back to believing that they're the God. And so we need as a nation to be humbling ourselves and coming back to God, the only one who is a firm foundation, as Dan reminded us earlier. So in a moment, I'm just going to give you the chance to ask God what to do. But the last question simply is this, that we ask one another, who can I share this with this week? What you've learned this morning isn't just for you, okay? It's lovely to come to church on a Sunday and receive all this teaching and get kind of built up, but God has given you something this morning because he wants you to share it with someone else. So who might you share it with this week? Maybe you'll get into a conversation at work or somewhere at about the political instability that's going on. And you'll have the chance to say, do you know what? This week at church, we were reading this story about 
a nation that was going through something very similar. They were, it was all falling apart. And what I learned from the Bible this week is if I don't have my trust in God, then all that stuff's going to crumble. Have you ever thought about putting your trust in God? Maybe you know someone who is facing the end of their life. And maybe they're looking for all kinds of security and all sorts of things. And maybe you will have the opportunity to share this story with them and say, actually, at the end of our lives, the only thing we can put our hope in is Jesus. Do you want to put your hope in him? Maybe you could just share with someone this week that you had understood that there was some pride in your heart about your own life and your achievements. And this week you'd chosen to give God the credit rather than yourself. So let's just take a moment now. If you'd just like to close your eyes. This is between you and God. This is an opportunity for the Spirit to speak to you. Maybe you've not heard God speak to you before. Maybe that's a new concept. How God speaks to me is just like my own voice in my head. It doesn't sound like a weird booming voice. I've never seen fingers right on a wall. It just sounds like me. But often what he says is something that I'm not thinking about. It just comes out of the blue. It often seems quite different to where my train of thought is going and I've come to understand that's God, that he is speaking in at that moment and I need to listen. And so this isn't a, you know, this not, we're not expecting booming voices, but you may hear a, a voice much like your own right now in your mind as you say to God, Holy Spirit, what should I do this week? in obedience to what I've learnt. What do you want me to do? And as you've heard him, you now have a choice. Because God's not going to force you to do that. He's asking you. Will you? Will you do that? And you can say to him now, God, I will. I will do that this week. I will be obedient to what you're asking of me.